K-U-C-I. I. C-I. C-K-U-C-I. Irvine. The opinions and views expressed on this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information about this show or other programs on KUCI, please log on to KUCI.org for the latest program schedule. Whoa, we are here. We're ready to queue up. My little jingle, everybody. Welcome to this edition of Ask a Leader. Sorry about that little dead air, everybody. We we tend to uh, refine as we go, but sometimes, sometimes we go backwards. Good morning. I'm your host, your hostess. I've got intern Kevin in with me this morning, making sure I do a better than decent job of it. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh. Welcome you to the May 21, 2013 edition of Ask a Leader. It's a zippy new electric car. It's a speeding ladybug. No, it's the Skaon IQ electric vehicle. Today we have Dr. Tim Brown, the technology manager for sustainable transportation and energy at the Advanced Power and Energy Program at UC Irvine. After that, we'll bring back disaster medicine physicians, Dr. Christy Koenig and Carl Schultz to cover what was learned in the aftermath of the Boston Marathon bombings. We know that Boston's response was exemplary and Turn to these two experts for the takeaway message about how we, I mean, you, John Q. Citizen, and me, and the experts and the first responders can be better prepared in Southern California. Please don't go away. We'll be right back after a short little interlude. everybody thanks for joining me and staying with us here on ask a leader my first guest is today is dr. Tim Brown the technology manager for sustainable transportation and energy at the advanced power and energy program at UC Irvine in this role he manages the research efforts of graduate students and undergraduates who are engaged in a variety of alternative energy vehicle and fueling research ranging from emissions testing of plug-in hybrid vehicles to hydrogen fuel production via novel processes utilizing biofuels to integration of wind and solar power generation into existing electric grid in parallel to the research efforts, Dr. Brown has also manages the operation of the UC Irvine Hydrogen Station. You know that lovely place near the Arboretum, everybody. And uh, this is arguably the most heavily used public hydrogen station in the fill-in-the-blank world and oversees the deployment of the 1520-20 Toyota and General Motors fuel cell vehicles in cooperation with the automakers. Dr. Brown received his Bachelor's of Science in Math and Engineering at Notre Dame, his Master's at the University of Michigan Dearborn Automotive Systems Engineering, and his Ph.D. at UCI, uh, the Irvine, uh, the medic, excuse me, Mechanical Engineering. Welcome, Dr. Brown, to Ask a Leader. Good morning. I'm happy to be here. Well, we are glad you're here. And as always, um, I want to start with uh, my guests that deal in transportation. 
How did you get to work today? Um, like any red-blooded American, I drove a 4,000-pound single-occupant SUV about 20 miles. Oh, my. How many cylinders? Six or eight? None. It actually, I'm lucky enough to have a, uh, through the relationship we have with Toyota, to drive a Toyota fuel cell vehicle. Oh, it is? Um, so it's hydrogen-powered and uh, some completely domestically produced hydrogen and zero criteria pollutant or greenhouse gas emissions uh, while operating the vehicle. Wow. Well, is that a red-blooded American? I think that's a red-blooded American with the green jumpsuit. Perhaps. Perhaps. Okay, good. Well, uh, UCI's important role here is bringing to and testing in the local market for the first time this green, high-tech transportation alternative mode. These benefits are uh, extensive. Let's, t- let's go through all of these benefits with this, and about this program that, so everybody's up to uh, hydrofuel speed here. Sure. Well, we, we operate a number of alternative fuel vehicles. We, we have a, what we call a ZevNet program, so a zero-emission vehicle network-enabled transport. And within that program, we have, I believe it's over 70 vehicles now. So we have a, a number of hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, um, as well as some battery electric vehicles and some plug-in hybrids, which are a mix of, of gasoline and battery electric. And the benefits, uh, in general, if we, if we look at transportation, the transportation problem that exists, uh, there's three main issues. There's the continued use of, of petroleum and all the consequences that has between cost and, and geopolitical struggles and you know, domestic resources, energy security, all of those things. Then there's the issue of criteria pollutant emissions, and of course these are the emissions of nitrous oxides and, and sulfur compounds that, that lead to smog. And in L.A., certainly we have uh, we're all familiar with this issue. And the third, and by far not the least, is greenhouse gas emissions and global warming. Um, problem and, and all of these are associated with with burning oil. So all of the vehicles we're looking at and the, the research we do are all striving to overcome these three problems and, and any others we can we can solve along the way. Um, so for the hydrogen cars, we're we're using hydrogen. Hydrogen is is pretty neat in that it can be produced from a number of different sources. Today, much of it is made from natural gas, which is still a fossil fuel, but much cleaner uh, and much lower emissions and domestically sourced uh, compared to Oil. And there's a, what's the hydro footprint like versus the carbon footprint from other emissions? Um, it's at least half. Wow. Um, and, and it can be much lower than that. So if it comes from natural gas, um, as I said, it, most of it does today, uh, because the process is more efficient, the vehicles are more efficient, and because natural gas has inherently a, a lower amount of carbon than, than oil, it's roughly half that of, of gasoline vehicles. But there's a huge upside there. We, could, we can make that... Um, hydrogen from all kinds of renewable sources, real wind or solar power in the future, and get that carbon footprint down to nearly zero. So that's the potential that it offers. Remarkable. And at, I hasten the way, there's benefits here. It allows the employers to provide a means of for their employees to transport themselves to work and, and uh, beyond and around uh, in a much more cost-effective way. Besides, make I'm sure morale. I'm sure morale has to be improved with people knowing they're contributing in their mode of their, their choice of mode of transportation. Sure. So within Zevnet program, as I said, we have some some battery vehicles and some hydrogen vehicles. The hydrogen vehicles right now are, are deployed to individuals kind of on a, a normal vehicle basis. Like I said, I drove my car up um, this morning, 20 mile commute, like most people would. Within that program, we have the, the Shared Use Station Card program, and this is where we have the electric vehicles stationed out at the Irvine Transportation Center. And the idea here is, um, much like Zipcar, if anybody's familiar with Zipcar, sure. we reserve a car ahead of time. We actually work with Zipcar on this project. Okay. Um, so people can, can reserve a vehicle ahead of time, 
ride the train or the bus to the, the Irvine Transportation Center, at that point pick up one of these electric vehicles that they've reserved ahead of time and drive the remaining three, four, five miles to their workplace. Um, so it gets over the hurdles of, of mass transit in a sprawling area like, like Orange County. And then once at the workplace, other employees can, can check out that car and drive it to business errands, to lunch, et cetera. And then that first guy picks the car back up in the evening and drives it back to the train station and rides the train back home. Well, so it's a really neat way to, to overcome the, the hurdles of mass transit and the, the petroleum issue. You know, and this begs the question, when you're sharing these cars then, so there is there some kind of like a, a panel, uh, instru- an instrument on the panel that lets the next person sharing car, they know how, what the range is, what's the available ca- the uh, the capacity, the range for that particular next commute is it? So they know. Uh, they go, oh, I can't jump in this car. I've got to go all the way to uh, to uh, Lake Lakewood. I have to go to the uh, you know some other place. Mm-hmm. Um, not yet. Ideally, there would be, and certainly that's something we're striving for. But right now, it's more manual, <laughs> more okay. uh, manpower required to sort of manage those issues. But we're lucky in that the the bulk of the commute that these people are doing is is done by by train or or bus. Uh, as a result, that the amount of mileage you put in the car is, is very small, so the battery can usually last the entire day. But if not, it, it's really up to the individuals using these vehicles to make that determination. The, the cars weren't designed for this sort of program, and as such, they don't have that kind of instrumentation in them. Um, but we're working with Toyota on this program, and hopefully the, the lessons learned from this for both Toyota and Zipcar will be put into uh, you know actual consumer products in the future to get over exactly those hurdles you're talking about. Well, let's give UCI and your program its due that this is the only program, is it not, in the region, in the state, in the nation? Um, I believe it's really the only, the only program in the nation that's using the what we call the shared car, station car. So it's, it's a shared vehicle that is also coupled with mass transit and is zero emissions. So those three components, um, each of those components is in a, a program somewhere else, but not all three together. Bravo, bravo. Well, that that I I would say that that there are lots of intangible benef- intangible benefits where uh, the the consumers are feeling like they really are uh, contributing and helping out the the pilot project and uh, contributing less to the carbon footprint and uh, and uh, do they have um, do you have like a, a means for them to complete a survey that they can talk about various handling issues or are, are you must you must be mining data wherever you can. We are. Uh, we collect some data from the vehicles, and we have a survey we give to consum- the, the, the users, I think, about once a quarter to get some of their feedback. Mm-hmm. And, and all in all, it's, it's very positive, and it's surprising. You're driving these, these very high-tech vehicles using completely different fuel sources. The, sort of the comments we get back are usually <laughs> pretty mundane. Oh, oh. The car's too small, or the car's too big, or it's not fast enough. They, it, they sort of, uh, it's not very long before you overcome the initial thoughts of the, the fuel, and it just becomes a, a car like any other. Oh, I, I wish it was red, <laughs> you know, those kind of comments. But they are red. But no, but isn't there, aren't they saying it's it's almost too cool for their existence? <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> I mean, that Perhaps. I would provide that block so they can give you that kind of input. Well, for those of you who are just tuned in to Ask Alita this morning, this is, of course, KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming to all the plugins around the world on KUCI.org. My guest is Dr. Tim Brown. Technology Manager for Sustainable Transportation and Energy at the Advanced Power and Energy Program at UC Irvine. And he's uh, giving all the kind of, uh, filling in all the blanks for, for those of you who want to, what is that cute, adorable red car doing in my neighborhood? And he, it's, it's being piloted in your neighborhood, folks, for those of you that are uh, lucky to be around. And so anybody can join this reindeer game, correct? 
Uh, right now, we, we sign up for businesses, so we, we have to have the, the business sign up. It's what we call a corporate model. Um, it's sort of a, a perk for their employees as well as, of course, a financial savings for them generally in uh, fleet vehicles. You know, fleet vehicles for companies can be quite expensive when they put these Tim, Dr. Tim, just yes. keep your phone close to your mouth. Sometimes we're getting a little <laughs> bit of a drop-off there, and we don't want to miss a detail. I, I apologize oh, for no, that. No, that's good. So, yeah, so we sign up for these vehicles in what we call a corporate model right now where uh, the business signs up uh, for one or two of these vehicles and, and offers to do them to their employees sort of as a perk, but it's also a benefit to the employer because they, they, they get uh, credit. Uh, a savings compared to having another fleet vehicle on their books. Okay, good. So uh, are they all clamoring? They're all fighting to get to those uh, to get into the program? Yeah, we have a number of, of businesses signed up now, and we have some other ones on the waiting list, um, so we're just working to get these cars deployed. Oh, I, 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 well, UC Irvine obviously is participating. That's why we're, we're seeing those hookups, and that's what I mean, folks, the hookups around here. So uh, so anybody, like students are eligible, faculty, I mean, it's or it's the employed, it's employed um, members of the UCI community, not students. Uh, not students right now. We have several students in our program that, that work with these vehicles and go out and change tires for us and provide ah. maintenance things. But in general, it's not for the student program. Well, speaking of the tires, I just had to trot out this marvelous feature that even I, the illiterate techie, the non-texter here, texturist, um, is that tight turning range. I know I looked it up that uh, the best of the com- regular conventional automobiles, the best turning radius you can get, folks, is the 32.6 foot radius. And the answer to what the turning radius for this, is it Skyon or how do I pronounce this, the IQEV? Um, Scion, Scion, I believe. Yes. The Scion IQEV and the turning radius is, Dr. Tim? That's about 13 feet or 14 Whoop. feet. Isn't that amazing? That's just, so everybody should just now be falling out of their chairs and, and they want to see that. I, I can't even imagine. I, at first, I didn't think it was 32 and a half feet that I needed to turn. I thought it was a lot less than that, but it, this does put perspective here. It makes U-turns much much more enjoyable. And safer. Yes. <laughs> and that it may, it may dispense with the three-point turn. <laughs> it may. Um, if we can convince people to to drive such small cars. Oh wow! Well, um, so that's so. Tell us about some of the other features besides this snappy one. Well, it's all electric, so you can plug it in um, at home with a regular 110 outlet, or you could use some of the new um, faster charging protocols that are out there. Faster chargers you see popping up at uh, shopping centers and whatnot. It can work with either one. It has a range of between 35 and 50 miles, depending on how you drive the car, mm-hmm. which isn't great, but it's certainly sufficient for most commutes, and that's what it was designed to do. It is uh, four seats. I've had myself and three graduate students in the car. It's very small, but we all fit. How tall were the graduate students? Um, there were some pretty big guys in there, so uh, well, we're six feet. Okay, and then we, somebody wants to know how many clowns can fit in this. <laughs> <laughs> that I don't know. Well, four. Four clowns. <laughs> there were four clowns at that time. Okay, good. Um, good, good, good. Well, um, and then some, uh, let's see, seats four. The thing with this range then is that does the range then, uh, I suppose with um, some of the the grades, that the range will drop with the grade. And, uh, and I want, just this is a little factoid, folks, that the toll roads were given a variance on 
the grade that they were allowed to build at. And so there there are steeper grades on the toll roads than are allowed with the rate with the the federal highway specifications. So um, not that everybody's going to be jumping on the toll road with these cars because of the, the the kind of commuting pattern that you're envisioning. But that that would bring that that's an issue with uh, what the range is for the these actual cars you're talking about. Absolutely. Um, except for those kind of issues, generally you you drive one way and you'll pay the penalty, and you drive back and you you get the benefit of going downhill, for example. Ah, so. Um, the real difference comes in in how fast you drive, whether it's city driving or highway driving. Mm-hmm. When you drive these cars up over you know sixty seventy miles an hour like you do in California, then then the mileage decreases uh, much more significantly than it would if you're driving around town. So the some of the expenses here, I noticed um, that you know to get one of those faster charging uh, plug-ins for like residential use, they're not cheap, but it's still it's easily offset with the with emissions um, uh, with the with the fuel. Um, savings that people have. So can you give us an a idea of a range of where of the, the fast charging plug-ins, what they might cost us? Sure. Uh, so right now there's, there's three different types of chargers, level one, level two, and level three. Level one is just the regular outlet. Um, you plug in the wall. Right, the 110 you're talking about. Right. And, and for this vehicle, it's, it's perfectly sufficient because, you know, it, it, I think the car can charge in four or six hours um, with 110. Certainly you spend that much uh, at home at night, so that would be fine. But when you get to some of the larger battery vehicles, the uh, Toyota RAV4 or the Tesla, for example, Nissan Leaf, you would need a uh, faster charger, and this is what they call level two, and this is the, the 220 or 240-volt uh, outlet. Uh, you have to install that in your garage, and it, it would usually cost several thousand dollars between buying the charger and paying an electrician to install it. Um, but then you can charge a car in at least half the time, if not even faster than that. And then level three is what they call... Uh, uh, Literally a fast charger, and this is more uh, located at, at businesses or even gas stations. Wouldn't be something you put in your home, but it could charge your car in roughly 30 minutes. Are there charges at those centers for using the the level three charger? It depends. Right now, um, there are a number of them already installed in California, and we're working with the California Energy Commission to decide the locations where these things need to go. It depends on on who funded the charger, where it's coming from. Right now, for example, Tesla dealerships have these at the at the dealerships, and if you buy a Tesla, you get that charging for free. Um, but most of the models do. Oh. Uh, they're, 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 these people are putting these in as a, as a business model, looking to make an income, and they do charge a fee for this. Uh, but it's certainly reasonable compared to gasoline. Do you have Do you have like an idea so we can just just imagine? I don't. Oh, just so we can start to conceptualize of where we're headed. And, of course, the cost will always keep coming down as the all these uh, details are worked out and competition in the, the charger field and all that kind of a thing. So, right. Oh, I can just imagine all these little charger outlets and the little icons that are sprouting around and the signs and all that kind of a thing. Well, um, so... Uh, so people are going to have to be mindful of the range, but the design of the program is for the short range. It wasn't meant for me to go to a, an evening meeting in Pasadena and come back. It's for me to jump off the Metrolink, go to my, uh, go to that outing at the Beckman Center, jump back in it, and return it to the Metrolink parking lot or Amtrak or something, and then go. So it's that that's the vision, and it it only gets better from there, and only gets more versatile from there. Exactly, um, and it's a nice solution to get over the hurdles of electric vehicles with the range and the recharging time, as well as the hurdles of mass transit in a, a sprawling area like we live in. Uh, certainly, the train will never take you to your doorstep, but if you had something like this for the last last mile, then it would be uh, much more practical. Well, we're aware of the sort of the the Fisker Auto case. It's uh, how it 
that particular enterprise has run, uh, fallen apart a bit. What does this tell us about electric car technology and um, niches in the market niches of different kinds of electronic cars? I don't think it tells us much. Um, certainly the Fisker uh, collapse was the, the prediction by, by most people, if you look at the, the history of starting up new automobile companies, from Tucker in the 40s to DeLorean to Bricklin, there have been a number of companies that have tried to start up you know, brand new automobiles with new technology or not, and they failed. That's kind of the status quo for, for new auto companies. So the fact that, that Fisker has gone through what it has, I think that was uh, very good odds of that happening regardless of what their technology was. On the other hand, you see Tesla, for example, seems to be succeeding right now uh, with their electric vehicle, and that's really not the norm. That's, that's unexpected, and, and I hope it continues. There's just so much that goes into making a car, and, and their competitors, you know, be it Toyota or General Motors or whoever has been at this for, for over 100 years, just the, the simple things, how to build a, a brake system or how to, you know, make a car that, that passes crash testing and doesn't leak when it rains, and all these simple things that are well beyond just the, the powertrain that Fisker tried to, to develop um, can really add up and I think makes it a, a huge burden for companies to start a new auto brand. Close close to your mic there. Um, so, and did Fisker come directly from a, a sort of a military technology, sort of that it was, it was far flung from any kind of a everyday consumerist um, sort of manufactured product? I believe so. Um, they had a sort of proprietary hybrid drive system technology. I think the technology is sound, and I think the idea is sound. I think just there's so many market forces. Transportation is, is so unique. Your light-duty transportation is so unique in that mm-hmm. there's this uh, huge manufacturing endeavor, uh, such a high technology, and then it all comes down to whether the consumer wants to buy the vehicle or not based on perhaps on the, the color or the shape of the car, regardless of the technology and engineering that goes into it. Um, so the, I think the technology was sound, but you, I believe you're correct that it came from a, a military application. Well, I uh, we I know there's lots for you to say about this. I know we want to make sure we give lip service to the this tech window of opportunity coming in October in Irvine at the Great Park. What role then has the ZevNet program in this upcoming solar decathlon scheduled, uh, as I said, in October at the Great Park? Tell us about that. Um, so certainly the UC Irvine is involved uh, in the solar decathlon, and the APEP program, the Advanced Power and Energy program, is involved. We've been involved with the Great Park in designing some of their energy planning for the park and those sort of things. Um, but apart from the location, the ZevNet program is not directly related to the, the Great Park or the solar decathlon. There's no uh, direct connection at this point, uh, apart from the Irvine Transportation Center being on the cusp of the Great Park. Okay. Well, um I, I'm not sure. I want to make sure we get all the takeaway messages covered here. I, I, I think I've got most of mine. Uh, with, uh, there's some other things that you want to make sure we have uh, talked about today. Um, where, where are? Let's see. We've got parking spaces at UCI at partic- Which exact locations? Um, in UCI, there's uh, public charging. In there's eight different spots around campus where there are public chargers. Um, most of them are in the parking structures around campus, although I, I can't name them. For okay, sure. that's good. That's good. That that's a, that defines it largely, like all the way from the Arc over probably to the Brent Center, where you've got the largest volume. But any of those eight parking structures, one could find them. Correct. And then, uh, so it's does the, the now with the Zipcar, the gas 
the insurance and everything, all of that is a part of the rental. So, uh, or the yeah, the rental share use. Uh, how how what's the financing for the use of the Scion? It's the same thing for the the Scion. The fuel, of course, is the electricity that would be uh, charged either at the workplace, um, and the company would be in charge of it, or at the the transportation center where we would cover that charging cost, um, maintenance. Uh, those sort of things are all covered. But, of course, remember, this is a demonstration program, so we're working uh, for a, uh, working with Toyota on this so that the, the true costs are not included. But right now we charge about $300 per car per month, which is quite competitive, and it's a very nice deal to it wow. for a vehicle that includes fuel and everything else. Okay. Well, very good. Well, I really am glad to hear from you today. This uh, We're talking with Tim Brown, Dr. Tim Brown. He's the technology manager for sustainable transportation and energy at the Advanced Power and Energy Program at UC Irvine. And what I think what we do need to let everybody know in the both uh, now in the message, and I'll include it in the summary for the podcast, uh, where does someone turn to get more information on the program? Sure. It's zevnet.org. And there's a phone number there. Um, I can give you that. The phone number, just in case somebody's computer's crashed. You, I mean, we can't totally turn off the telephone. We've got to, we've got to go for some interactive stuff here, uh, live time. So it, sure. while you're looking that up, we can uh, mention, yes, again, that's zevnet.org for more information on who's, who's participating, who can be eligible, and uh, all the sexy details that are uh, a part of being a part of this pilot program, and it's it is giving giving uh, in, in a pilot program to um, ad- advance the technology, and I'm sure it's got to be a scream. I've I've seen one of my neighbors jump in and out one of those ladybugs, and I, I think I might just um, thumb up and ha- see if they can let me ride around with them, and then we'll and we'll work on how many clowns can fit into one of these. There so, you go. The do, the number off offhand is is one eight seven seven three seven eight nine four seven six. Okay, nine. All right, we're going to repeat that eight seven seven. That because it's a toll free call. Looks like eight seven seven three seventy eight ninety four seventy six, and the zevnet dot org gets you where you need to go. Well, Doctor Tim Brown, thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader, and I, I, I want uh, you to keep this contact information. We have. I want to jump into one of those and uh, uh, see what it's like. Maybe bring in a live, uh, uh, bring in a my my portable recorder and have a. Uh, a lively uh, sort of feed here of what, what it's like to zip around in with one of yours. I think that would be good. They're, they're very quiet cars inside. It would be nice to record in. Okay. Oh, that's right. That's another advantage. Well, very good then. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Take care. Thank you. So what we're going to do now is we're going to take a break, and we want to uh, bring on our second guests, that is, Doctors Christy Koenig and Carl Schultz, Director of Disaster Medical Sciences for UC's Department of Emergency Medicine. So they're going to post us on the lessons learned in the aftermath of the Boston Marathon bombings. Stay tuned. Don't go away.
Thank you, everybody, for staying with us here. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. And we have, especially for you, uh, a really uh, pertinent topic uh, t today to cover with our very special expert guests. That is, welcoming back my guests are Dr. Christy Koenig and Dr. Carl Schultz. And I thought as the entire medical health care delivery infrastructure responded during the aftermath of the Boston Marathon bombings that it would be a good idea to hear from these two disaster medical directors at UCI about the knowledge that's been gained from this recent travesty. And since, and I don't use the word tragedy, folks, that is the most misused word when you're talking about these kinds of things. It's catastrophe, it's disaster, it's travesty. There is a redeeming feature to a tragedy in, in the human condition. And I don't like how journalists race to use that word. So I'm just, I try to do my part in the correcting that phenomenological aspect there. So back to the travesty at hand. Since the last terrorist attack on U.S. soil in 2001, the U.S. has spent literally billions of dollars to train emergency responders from all jurisdictions to build and maintain an enormous apparatus designed to respond to events like what was on uh, last uh, in last April. My guests today are Dr. Christy Koenig, Director the Center for Disaster Medical Sciences. She's an internationally recognized expert in the fields of homeland security, emergency preparedness, and response and emergency medical services. And she's back in, she's been all over the, the world. She's back in just in time for this interview. I'm so grateful to her. At UC Irvine Medical Center, Dr. Koenig trains emergency physicians to ensure patient assessments will be quick, accurate, and effective in times of crisis. Dr. Koenig trains, uh, she also serves on the UC Irvine's Bioterrorism Com Committee to develop practical and realistic response plans in the event of a real or suspected bioterrorism attack. My other guest is, this, this half hour is her colleague, Dr. Carl Schultz. He's also an internationally recognized expert in the field of disaster medicine. As professor of emergency medicine at UCI, School of Medicine, among other department heads, he heads there. He's the director of disaster medical science services for the Department of Emergency Medicine. He's an expert in disaster medicine, including all forms of weapons of mass destruction, preparation, and response to natural disasters maybe like tornadoes that are taking out towns in Oklahoma. Uh, he's internationally, um, international faculty appointments he has and is consultant for the Department of Defense as well as other national and international groups. Both Dr. Koenig and Dr. Schultz, welcome back to Ask a Leader. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. Well, both of you, let's take a moment to consider what the two of you thought when you first heard about this disaster in Boston at the end of the marathon, the finish line, what went through your minds, both of you? Well, uh, Professor Schultz and I were actually teaching at a meeting in Kuwait, and it was one of those times when there were many international experts, and we all got this information uh, very quickly through social media. How quickly? And Just so we can time that. We, we knew immediately when oh, it wow. happened, okay. immediately. And so we were very concerned um, that another disaster had struck, and we were trying to, to gather more information. Dr. Schultz? The, the tragedy, and, and, and it's, uh, it's really a difficult situation to, to get your head around because you're sitting at, at a dinner table with guests, uh, and then this sort of comes up. 
But the uh, the Boston EMS system has uh, been prepared for a long time for this sort of event. Not that you would want this to happen to anybody, but if it were going to happen to somebody, uh, probably they are as well prepared as virtually anyone for this sort of event. And the fact that this happened at the Boston Marathon meant that there was a significant amount of uh, preparation, not just from the EMS system, but from medical providers. So um, as, as difficult a time as this was, um, I also knew and, and felt good that, that there would be the best response one could hope for in this kind of situation because of all the planning they had done pre-event. And we'll, we'll break that all down because there's, uh, I've, uh, there's been some interesting forums about that where they've... Uh, deconstructed uh, every aspect of that, and I'm going to go through each of those with you. So uh, one re- re- remarkable thing in one of those forms at the, um, the, the um, I'm going to figure out which, uh, at the Kennedy Public uh, School of Public uh, Policy there, but, um, but one remarkable fact was not a single person sent to the hospital died of their wounds. Isn't that phenomenal? That's, that is um, really a fairly uh, significant uh, uh, outcome, and and uh, part of that has to do with the speed at which they were able to respond, because they had so many medical assets uh, and, and pre-hospital assets uh, literally on site. The the medical tent with all of the uh, medical support people were literally 50 yards from the finish line. So you literally had within a minute uh, a significant, sophisticated response and process. So. Uh, you still that doesn't guarantee um, that uh, there won't be any fatalities out of, on people after they arrive to the hospital, but certainly you could be pretty well reassured that that anything that could have been done in the field uh, to sustain and prolong their lives was done. And so the fact that that nobody died uh, after they were admitted to the hospital, uh, I, I think, is a statement about how effective they were in their response. This is one of the scenarios that we teach about and train for. In fact, at a lecture that very day in Kuwait, I talked about how you can have a planned terrorist attack at a mass gathering. And this is exactly why, uh, uh, one of the reasons why we stage medical assets at any kind of gathering, whether it's a political convention or a sporting event. And I've worked at the New York City Marathon at the finish line. I know there's a lot of resources there just to help people with injuries and illnesses you would expect from a marathon like hyperthermia. Mm -hmm. So in a way, as Dr. Schultz says, that was fortunate to have all those responders on the scene instantaneously, as well as the the bystanders who were helping out as well to take care of these victims. And I I will unpackage the bystander role because that's one of the huge takeaway messages in a community radio format like what we're providing here at KUCI. Um, But um, before I do that, in general, uh, the the deconstruction of that, they all commented on that things like the weather, was it broke their way as far as the, the conditions. It was a cooler day. The, the year previous, it was a hot marathon, and there were a lot of people that were dehydrated. There weren't as many dehydrated this year, so they didn't have as many customers in those tents along the, the route. So that was lucky. And uh, let's see, fewer folks. Um, so especially at the, the finish line, as I was saying, there were fewer that. So there's that factor that comes into it. Then the, let's talk about uh, the citizenry that was out there. Some of them, they just, before we get into what the, the EMS sort of um, the drill response, that somehow those citizens knew how to, to uh, apply a tourniquet with whatever kinds of, of uh, textile they had in their grasp. 
That's very true, and this was a phenomenal demonstration of what we would call community resilience. Uh, that's yes. a new term that we're using, community yes. resilience. People were really stepping up to the plate to volunteer, and they were using both common sense and prior training. Some had military training, some had taken part in civilian training, basic first aid, and so forth. So by all accounts, the, the response was phenomenal. And uh, then in a more intangible way, some of those um, EMS uh, participants, professionals were talking about, there was the just connecting with a, uh, a a wounded person, just talking to them, giving them reassurance, giving them, just keeping them conscious and that kind of a thing uh, was sort of the second tier of uh, an emergency response that I imagine there's that, there's that intangible still a part of your whole protocol that you consider. Absolutely. The um the concept of that obviously you, the, the acute uh, responses to the medical threats, but there's a very substantial psychological component to all of these things. And actually at our center we have an individual whose expertise is in the area of, of the psychological impacts of disasters. And, and so having people there to, to try and, and, and bring some sort of sense of calm and a sense of control to the chaos may uh, make the psychological impact less and, and their overall um, uh, morbidity going forward uh, actually less because they are, are, are not as psychologically traumatized as well as obviously being physically traumatized. The real, real important uh, piece. Well, it's the, the Harvard School of Public Health Forum really was, um, it was a very good uh, sort of a session for anybody could go online and see how they deconstructed it. It was, they did talk about that community resilience and then the, the collaboration and efficiency were uh, the other go words about how all of this could come together. And so that besides the um, professionals at their tents, there were these um, uh, transit um, modes. There were golf carts. There were EMTs on bikes. There, were all, there was all kinds of things that would uh, quicken the, the uh, response time of getting victim to their, uh, the health care delivery post, whether it was in the tent, getting them to the, to the hospital, getting them to the ER, getting them to surgery. So it was, there, there were all those pieces involved. Uh, did you want to comment on some of the, that hardware that was out there? Well, this is very typical in these types of events that patients arrive to the hospital outside the EMS system as well as within the EMS system. And we have a number of colleagues uh, in Boston. Uh, we've also done work with the Harvard School of Public Health in their prior forums. And we know that the importance of drilling and exercising yes. and preparing, this is probably one of the best examples of things working the way they were drilled that I know of. Uh, for example, my understanding is patients were distributed to 27 different hospitals, the 264 uh, live victims who went to hospitals. When you look and study prior events, uh, commonly they take all the people either to the closest hospital or the trauma center, and of course people coming uh, outside of the EMS system will just go to the closest place. Mm -hmm. So this was very well done, and what that meant is they had the resources, even though they had to surge up, to take care of the patients they received and did an outstanding job of managing this uh, catastrophe. Oh, I remember your concept. You brought that surge up in your previous appearance here on Ask a Leader, and that's that's exactly what it is. And, and uh, it was also one of those um, uh, features that... Uh, worked to this efficient response was that there were two shifts. There was a transition from the earlier day shift to the later day shift that doubled up the staff at the ER uh, faci the facilities. 
That's absolutely that's right, and that's yeah. one of the techniques that we teach for surge capacity, the term surge capacity, to improve that at hospitals is to keep the next shift on and the previous shift there because you increase the number of personnel, which is one of the main components of surge capacity. Okay. And even if this had happened when the shifts weren't okay. uh, co-mingling, where it wasn't a change of shift, there's a, a fairly substantial uh, uh, rapid response by most uh, hospital-based healthcare providers when there are events. Matter of fact, oftentimes you have more people responding to the hospital than you can use, and one of the things you really? have to learn how to do is to manage the number of people converging on the hospital uh, offering their assistance. So um, in, in this particular sense, you already had the people there, but I, I suspect that even if, if it wasn't during the change of shift, um, Boston's a pretty small town. A lot of people probably live fairly close to that, and their their um, surge capacity plans. I mean, our hospital has a similar thing where where individuals are supposed to call in or or show up if they need help. Uh, so that it's it's likely that they would have had um, probably not as rapidly, but but soon thereafter, a fair number of of people to help with the uh, overall load of, of casualties. That's exactly right. We've termed that convergent volunteerism, uh -huh. and sometimes well-meaning people show up who haven't been trained and aren't familiar with the system, and they can actually become uh, part of the problem rather than part of the solution because wow. it takes time away to make sure that they have the proper credentials, that they know how to work in this environment to protect themselves and so forth. So it's really important for both healthcare providers and community members to train and become part of the system before a tragedy. Right. Doctor, we're listening to uh, Drs. Christy Koenig and Drs. Ka uh, Dr. Carl Schultz, Center for Disaster Medical Sciences at UCI. They're de deconstructing uh, the uh, aspects, of, all of the aspects here of the Boston Marathon bombings, uh, the response. And uh, we're looking now at how the, uh, as she's talked, uh, Dr. Koenig's talking about the convergent uh, volunteerism and all the other professionals that are surging to respond to this disaster as it unfolds very, very rapidly. And so uh, I know that uh, since practicing the, the, all the EMS, the emergency management and um, emergency medical, um, let's see, the S stands for, uh, the EMS professionals, they all, all of them drill. The, the ER physicians drill. The, the hosp everybody's drilling, but the citizenry doesn't drill unless their employers mandate it in some way. How are you making inroads in that, Drs. Koenig and Dr. Schultz? There's a couple of, of options. There, there actually have been some uh, programs that are targeting citizens. Uh, there's the, um, the CERT teams, the uh, citizen emergency response teams, which are, are actually sort of almost like neighborhood watch, but with a, a, a more disaster uh, preparedness bent, where they can get uh, basic training and first aid and, and rudimentary search and rescue. So there are things that are available um, for the communities at large. And actually, uh, here in Seal Beach, Dr. Koenig uh, uh, and I have participated in um, some of these events uh, where they try to organize by neighborhoods. Um, but the, the general response by the public has, has not been as, as good as it might be. So the Boston, that's called the Boston Standard, I guess. Is that not what you say in your circles of professionals? The Boston, the, uh, as far as the response, it was, it's called like the Boston Standard, so that it's a model that um, I think it behooves all of us to uh, 
to abide by. So we we have some kind of drill in us. We know how to not be counterproductive. We know how to be um, getting out of the way or getting falling in line with um, an effective response to something that it's as the EMS uh, deconstructing crew at the at the the Harvard um, the uh, public school felt uh, formation was I'm sorry the format was talking about was that we need to um, it's it's drilling but we're needing to know know what to do and at, at the right time all of right. us the, the volunteers can actually you know, traditionally um, lay volunteers have been uh, a mixed blessing uh, yes. sometimes being very helpful other times really uh, causing issues but um, there, uh, an organized volunteer response can actually be very helpful, and I think that's what uh, we're targeting. That's what we would uh, hope for: is that with a, a well-trained citizenry, then uh, the the uh, volunteers would actually be a part of the system and and be more effective at uh, at um, uh, getting the result that we're looking for, making it more smooth and efficient. And there are volunteer organizations uh, um, in the United States that that's their goal is to try and and bring more uh, organization and, and more efficiency to uh, volunteers, uh, but that still has, has a ways to go. And I do want to emphasize that these are, are national programs yes. and policies and procedures that have put in place. Boston is a great example. Yes. If you look at Oklahoma City right now with right. their management of this horrific uh, tornado, I'm, I'm sure based on their previous um, activity that they are doing very well in managing it also. And so these are programs where there are requirements for hospitals. Um, there are programs that um, nationally models for communities, and they're implemented uh, across the entire United States, not just in some cities. Correct. And I, I guess not, I did want to uh, certainly uh, refer to the travesty that occurred yesterday, but also the, uh, the Texas fertilizer plant um, explosion was just a day after the Boston Marathon. So there were that was, again, uh, putting a, a, you know, taxing an emergency management system, a federal one, correct? Uh, that's a more complicated issue. Um, the, the federal, the, the, the actual federal response for both of those events was uh, really not the, the critical piece. Um, the, most of the uh, immediate responses to disasters are local. Okay. Right, and that um, the, the biggest impact on survival is going to mean by local responders. It just takes generally too long to get federal assets uh, after the fact someplace. The the issue with with Boston was all those assets were already there for the marathon, so there really didn't need um, a a significant federal response. Uh, in the sense of medical aid, what the federal response provided in the terms of law enforcement was uh, a crime scene investigation and, and uh, rapid, very rapid uh, apprehension of the perpetrators. So that part they were they were very uh, effective in. But from the medical side, both of these events really were more uh, dictated. The outcomes were dictated by the local response, yes. and it would take too long for any significant federal response to have arrived to make a difference. Okay. There are multiple layers of responses, starting at the local slash regional level, and then the state also has assets, and then the federal level. And, of course, um, as you heard the president say this morning about Oklahoma City, uh, uh, not Oklahoma City, but the more Oklahoma, Oklahoma. Tornadoes, yes. Tornadoes, uh, right. they are 
closely monitoring and have offered any possible assistance needed. But as Dr. Schultz says, everything starts at the local level with one of these sudden onset, no-notice events, and you need to be prepared at that level. But because by the time you can mobilize state and federal assets, um, most of the acute injuries are already taken care of um, at the local level. Yes. And, and to that end, uh, we've actually been involved in developing a program for a catastrophic earthquake scenario here in Southern California called Medical Disaster Response that looks at training and equipping people at the local level to bridge that gap before any state and federal resources could arrive and try to save the most lives possible. And is that going to be something we'll see at UCI within the next 10, 12 months for some, uh, we do have the, the, the great quake-a-thon or whatever it's called, but, um, the, but uh, is, it, it's right. And so um, is, there, is there a particular uh, schedule that we can um, impart now to the public that, to watch for this kind of training? Well, actually, this had been going on. Uh, I was involved with the uh, campus, the UCI main campus, in uh, training there. They have a physician group that actually has some offices on campus. And for many years, uh, I would go out uh, and offer a refresher course on some basic disaster uh, uh, interventions geared towards physicians because they have a physician group there. Uh, And they actually even had a stockpile of equipment for a while. But the funding for that has expired, and so uh, there, are, there currently is uh, no training program for those on campus geared towards earthquakes, although certainly that could be um, rehabilitated if there was funding to, uh, to support it. There are programs, however, for the community uh, through the um, community emergency response teams, uh, the reserve corps. So there are programs in your neighborhood where you could go for some basic training and volunteer. Okay. And are there there websites I can include in the podcast? You can maybe email me them later. Are are they some at the tip of your tongue right now we can impart? Well, are you looking for... (laughs) There's so many websites. Okay, well, that's right. you got to right. be a little more specific. What, no, what are you Right, right. For? Well, the community uh, um, emergency response team and the, other, the reserve teams and those kinds of things. So we, I can just yeah, put some of those. There's a website for the, for the CERT teams, and that, we can send you that. Okay, we'll put, I'll put that up there when I do the podcast. So, um, and the reason why, folks, I'm so adamant about the, the citizen component of preparing for disasters is as the folks that were deconstructing this with the um, the Boston Marathon bombings was, it's not a matter of if it's going to happen. It's when the disaster is going to happen. There's no reason to think we're not going to have it. Something happened, so we might as well be prepared. There's no sense in acting like uh, this is an exercise for other people to worry about. It's one, it's an exercise that we own. It's, I don't do calls of action. We're not allowed to do that by the FCC regulations, <laughs> but I can certainly importune people to sense the urgency of something like this. And we're, uh, the, Drs. Koenig and Dr. Schultz are severely overbooked professionals and to have their both of their time today is to make that drive that point through is what we all need to be uh, literate in in our response and and I'm and the, all those EMS technicians uh, in that deconstruction were they all said that every drill they had they just without even thinking they just went through it they all had to uh, overcome an initial sense of shock but it didn't last long before then they 
they kicked into their uh, their protocol and and admirably uh, handled the situation at hand. One, one other point, when you have an explosion, a terrorist attack like this, it is common for the terrorists to set secondary exactly. devices. And so that's important to be aware of. There was a second bomb, for example, in this setting. So both for citizens and the responders, it's important to know about that. And they talked about that. They said they weren't sure if the, after the second explosion there were to be more, and they were worried that the an explosion would draw a mass, a surge of a different kind, the surge those uh, people attending disaster, and then they might have been victimized by uh, additional uh, detonations. But in, the, in this case, it was only two. But they didn't know. Nobody knows how many are going to go off until they, it stops. And so That's it, right. As a matter of fact, the, the, a lot of the uh, initial experience with this sort of serial explosions is from Israel, where they have developed a, a, a part of their whole process is to rapidly uh, evacuate casualties because of they, they pretty much count on a second explosion. And so they are well aware of that, and they, they incorporate uh, a second explosion into their entire response planning. And we have looked at that and, and learned from that uh, and, and uh, added that to the disaster uh, uh, information base as, as to how to respond to these kinds of events. And we saw a similar coordinated attack approach in the Madrid bombings, and uh, we've worked with people from all of these international forums and come together and had meetings to try to learn as best we can how to manage these types of events. Oh, remarkable. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap it with this, but I think we've given a sufficient uh, level of uh, urgency in this message today. Doctors Koenig and Dr. Schultz, I really thank you so much for being uh, on Ask a Leader today with uh, the emergency management response that uh, was how well it was executed in the Boston Standard and how important it is for all of us to own our role in when it occurs, not if it occurs in our midst, wherever we are listening to this program. Thank you for being on Ask a Leader today. It's our pleasure, and thank you for drawing attention to such an important issue. Thanks for the invitation. It's a real uh, pleasure to be and, here. And we will remain your community radio station. Were the two of you uh, needing a, a forum, uh, as maybe this Ask a Leader gets to be more of a force to be contend with than a, a broader and broader audience. So I want to do my part. So please keep us in mind for future messages. Take care. All the best to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we are going to close with a few announcements because I cannot resist. And I want you to know, first of all, Tomorrow night at the Beckman Center is a program presented by Distinctive um, Voices, the Evolving Climate Change, um, Climate for Science and Society, that, that Wednesday night. Uh, is it, that's May 22 at 7 p.m. A form not to miss presented by Alan Lechner. He's the chief executive officer of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. It's free there at the Beckman Center, but reservations are necessary. More information is available at the at Distinctive Voices at the Beckman Center. That's the uh, website or dialing 949-721-2213. Uh, I have just a little bit more time here. I'm going to squeeze in a few more announcements before we get Jorge Rosales on. His hat is waiting. Saturday, uh, June 1st, it's time to sign up now for the Girls, Inc. and UC Irvine Care. They're partnering to offer a girls' conference for girls aged 13 to 18. 
and their guardian or parent. The theme is, and I quote, unspoken rules of being a girl, end of quote, which allows, uh, will cover for life skills, media literacy, and how media can affect body image, college and career readiness, healthy relationships, assertiveness, and more. They do it like nobody else at Girls Inc. So uh, the keynote speaker will be uh, Dr. Lois Frankel, known for her book, uh, among others, nice girls don't get the corner office, nice girls don't get rich. See Jane lead, and as I said, and many others. I also just couldn't help resist uh, posting you on um, the judge on the Rainier Reinscheid case. For those of you who've been following that one, the pharmaceutical uh, faculty member who was implicated in some uh, setting some fires and threatening students at Uni High. That that case continues. The hearings here in Orange County Superior Court system. He has had six arraignments so far, and the fourth. I'm sorry, the seventh arraignment will be convened on June 4th. Well, that's all the time we have today. It's George Rosales up next. I'm going to say for next week's programming, I'll be honoring veterans. And then Barry Glasner, author of The Culture of Fear, Why Americans Are Afraid of the Wrong Things. He'll take up this over a decade after the text publication. He had it right then. He still has it right now. Thanks for joining me today. I appreciate your listening. All the best, everyone.